Hello and welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Ment Mariwani, currently in London. And I am Dan Reno in San Francisco. This is our 100th episode, and whether you're joining us for the first time or are a longtime listener, we're happy to have you. Dan, you own a car, right? Of course, I'm an American. I think it's uh, required for citizenship here or something. <laughs> um, do you know what happens to it once it's reached its sort of life cycle? Anytime I'm getting rid of a car, not that I've done this a lot, I usually sell it to someone else, whether a friend or someone in my city. But I guess you're more meaning like these old cars where no one either wants to buy them or they're like kind of maybe falling apart. Like I see these posters and flyers around often saying like, we buy old cars Is that kind of what you're talking about here? Yeah, so what I'm talking about is cars that are between 10 and 15 years old. And what happens to them once they reach those 10 or 15 years? I actually remember when I went to Guatemala earlier this year, there's a lot of American school buses that are on Guatemalan streets and they look really crazy. Have you seen them? Yeah, I've seen them in like Nicaragua and Panama. They're like uh, chicken buses, right? That's what they're called. And people use them. They're such the buses to get around town. They're like painted crazy colors. And they often have like welded steel racks on the top. And they're usually crowded. And But I've always wondered, how the heck does like an American school bus end up in Latin America? Exactly. They call them chicken buses because apparently they get so crammed that they look kind of like chicken cages. Oh. So once a car or any kind of vehicle reaches its end of life cycle... It either gets recycled or it ends up being resold in other parts of the world, like Guatemala. And that's why you find those buses all across Latin America. Okay, so you said it happens with a lot of vehicles. I imagine cars are in there too. Is this a large-scale thing? And if so, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it might seem like a positive thing because you're extending the life cycle of a car, right? And there are some people who would say you are bringing less polluting cars to places where there are more polluting cars. Sure. But at the same time, those cars can still be very polluting and they can also cause a lot of road hazards. So Ghana, for example, in 2020, introduced a policy that tries to ban the importation of cars that are older than 10 years old into the country. And this is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Why are older cars imported into developing countries? What impact do they have there? And how effective are trade restrictions like the ones introduced in Ghana? But first, I wanted to hear from someone who could tell me why these used cars get exported from richer countries in the first place. My name is Paul Bledsoe. I'm a professorial lecturer at American University Center for Environmental Policy. I'm a former staff member of the Clinton White House on Climate Change communications director of the White House Climate Change Task Force under President Clinton. I am also a strategic advisor to the Progressive Policy Institute, which is a Washington-based think tank. Paul told me that he first became interested in the topic when he found that there's a growing trend to use more efficient vehicles on U.S. roads. I began to wonder, okay, what's going to happen to all of the vehicles that are still operatable cars and trucks, but that no longer qualify under emissions rules for roads in places like the United States, Europe, Japan, and other developed countries. And so I started looking into this question of what happens to vehicles when they're no longer operated within the developed world. Currently, the majority of cars are up to 90% are dismantled and recycled for parts and materials. 
In the US, it's estimated that about 80% of car's materials are recyclable, including all the steel, aluminium, glass and plastic. Of the remaining 10%, many cars either end up in junkyards or are sold and exported abroad. And it turns out they are shipped overseas to developing countries primarily. And they have a second life there. In Europe, Japan, the US, somewhere on the nature of 5 million vehicles a year are being shipped overseas for use in the developing world, primarily to Africa, but also to Latin America, some places in Asia. Used cars are often in high demand due to their affordability compared to new cars. And that has implications for their economies, but also for climate risk and air pollution and other concerns. And I'm particularly interested in what's going to happen to the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of vehicles using gasoline that will be moved off the market as we adopt other technologies and especially electric vehicles. When did the U.S. begin exporting end-of-life vehicles? This really began in the 1980s and 90s that the U.S. and others, Japan, Europe, began sending their older vehicles to the developing world. And it's kind of picked up pace steadily over that period of time. He says, although the U.S. exports all kinds of vehicles, it's mainly cars, or what's called light-duty vehicles, that end up on the secondary market. You know, just average cars that people drive. There are buses and trucks that also have a secondary market overseas. So some buses and vans can have a second life overseas. Typically, you're looking at cars that are about 10 to 15 years old. And there are a number of reasons why richer nations want to get these older cars off the road. One reason is that they drag down the fuel economy of the entire fleet. There are regulations in Europe and the United States and in Japan and elsewhere for the average emissions and auto mileage of vehicles. So the transportation sector is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, slightly larger than the electric power sector, somewhere on the order of 33% of U.S. emissions come from transportation. And so driving down emissions from transportation is a huge part of reducing overall greenhouse gas emissions. Basically, there's an incentive in the system to retire vehicles off the road that are older and higher emitting and get lower mileage. Another reason is that more electric cars are becoming available in richer nations. So I think this process of retiring still functioning cars and vans and trucks, buses off the road is going to speed up. And part of the incentive is these regulatory processes and then part of the incentive will be over time that the new vehicles will be cheaper to operate. Vehicles right now are still more expensive on the sticker price. They are cheaper to operate. At some point within the next decade, they're just going to become cheaper altogether. And so when that happens, I think you may see a huge influx of used internal combustion engine vehicles, gasoline-powered vehicles, hitting the secondary market. And that will be an interesting question about 
what we do as a used auto exporting nation and what used importing nations do as well. In April, the Biden administration in the US proposed new climate regulation for passenger cars, which limits how much planet warming emissions can come from an automaker's fleet. There are several options that the Environmental Protection Agency has proposed this week, but in its most ambitious option, two-thirds of new vehicles under the law would essentially be required to be electric by 2032. I don't believe that most ambitious option is going to become law. I think what we're more likely to see is something like about half of new vehicles will be electric by regulation by about 2030, 2032. And as richer nations are gearing up to make electric cars more affordable and replace combustion engine vehicles, Paul says it's likely we'll see those older combustion vehicles appear on the secondary market. What looks likely is that you're going to see, as electric vehicle sticker prices come down, sales are going to shoot up. And all the automakers are moving their production lines toward EVs. So what you're likely to see is a very rapid scale up of purchase of electric vehicles, both for regulatory and for these industry production reasons and cost reductions. It's all going to mean that you're going to see a huge number of secondary market internal combustion engine gasoline vehicles flood the market in the next decade. Some of those vehicles will stay in the United States. But I suspect that a large number of them will be shipped overseas because, again, they'll be relatively newer, they'll be better, they'll have a longer life in a secondary market. And so I think what may be about to occur over the next five or ten years is a huge influx of cars from the U.S. Europe is doing the same thing we're doing even more aggressively. Japan, Canada, Australia, other developed countries. What Paul says makes a lot of sense about this electric car kind of revolution going to be pushing a lot of combustion engine cars down to developing nations because I have a car. It's my little Subaru. I love it, but it's about 12 years old and I'm just hoping she lasts long enough so that I can buy an electric car once the infrastructure gets good enough out here. Yeah, now multiply that across the US and you can imagine that there's going to be a lot of people in your position who are trying to get rid of their combustion engine car, right? So when this kind of switch happens, when these EVs really become more accessible, the infrastructure gets better, that 5 million number that Paul mentioned, I got to imagine that that's going to be increasing a lot as we get these old cars shipping out. So what does the research say about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because like you were saying, there's some issues with these old cars. Yeah, that's what I wanted to find out. Remember, Ghana recently banned the import of older cars. So I spoke to a researcher who's been looking at the reasons behind the import restrictions. I grew up in Ghana and the majority of the vehicles that operate in the country were used vehicles. My name is Festival Kodwin Guate. I just completed my postdoctoral research at Columbia University in the U.S. My postdoctoral research fellowship work at the Climate School of Columbia focused on the intersection of sustainability and urban policy, the context of my broader research interest, transportation, low safe emission transport kind of reforms in, in the African context. The Ghana Revenue Authority, they estimate that some 80% of the 
100,000 vehicles that are imported into the country annually are used vehicles. Some analysis even put it at 90%. He says it's not just in Ghana, but the import of used vehicles has been happening across the African continent as a whole. In terms of the wider regional or African context world, between 2015 and 2018, some 14 million used vehicles were exported from the European Union, Japan, and the US, and 40% of them went to African countries. And the US exported some $8 billion worth of used passenger vehicles in 2021. And that was up from about $6 billion in 2017. Nigeria alone took in around $720 million worth of these vehicles, which is also up from roughly $280 million five years ago. While the US previously led exports of used vehicles, other countries have rapidly grown exports of used cars too. A lot of them come from the US, but then figures from the Observatory of Economic Complexity, linked MIT, they have some figures for 2021, arguing that Ghana imports primarily from the United States, 242 million, the United Arab Emirates, some $138 million, and Canada, some $63.7 million, and Japan, $48.1 million. And India also, the fastest growing markets for used vehicles in Ghana between 2020 and 2021 were the United Arab Emirates, $60 million, followed by US, $29.7 million, yeah, and India, $14 million. It's pretty substantial. Festival says, for many who purchase these used cars in Ghana, they provide vital access to transportation. Basically, they get second life as an affordable transportation option in places like Ghana. For instance, the Automobile Association of South Africa put out some figures in 2014 arguing that the average cost of a new vehicle exported from the US um, was on $28,000, but then the used ones were $11,000. The used vehicles are pretty affordable. In Ghana, for every 100 vehicles on Ghana's road, you are going to have 80 to 90 of them, you know, being used vehicles. So essentially, if you shut the used vehicle market down, you wouldn't have any cars on the roads. So the vehicles are very important, supporting mobility. They also create numerous economic opportunities, right? They create livelihoods for millions of people, including mechanics, experienced drivers and also other garage operators. So they serve real needs, both transportation and also you know, other important social economic functions. But he says many of the imported cars are old and can significantly contribute to pollution. Of course, they tend to be pretty old. For instance, analysis by the Road Safety Authority of Ghana suggests that a significant proportion of the commercial vehicles in Ghana that only 13% of the vehicles are often below five years. About 34% are up to some 10 years. With those up to 15 years, shooting over 50% of vehicles. So they tend to be highly polluting. And to make matters worse, they tend to do modifications to these vehicles. The catalytic converters are removed and they modify these vehicles to source metals, which make them even more polluting. On top of that, Older cars are less safe than newer ones. The U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration did some analysis in 2013. They controlled for the effects of numerous factors such as driver age, blood alcohol content, time of day, speeding, type of food, and many other factors. 
they wanted to see whether they ordered the car and how it impacts on, if you like, fatality when it's involved in crash. And the results was remarkably consistent. The older the vehicle, the more likely its driver will die in a crash. That's because older cars often have outdated safety features and their existing safety features wear down with time. It sounds like the benefits and the advantages of importing used cars only exist because there is a real lack of infrastructure to some extent. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You're right. The advantages exist because the vehicles serve real needs. People don't have transportation options, especially in places like Ghana, right? Like much of that part of Africa, where a great number of people in Ghana, they meet their travel needs through walking. But then for longer distances, they rely on the ubiquitous minibuses. They call them Chocho in Ghana, Kenya Matatus, Nigeria Damfo, South Africa minibus taxis. Several contexts have different names, but these are ubiquitous minibuses that support mobility across these low-income global South countries. But even though they're widely used, the problem with these privately owned bus systems is that they're often unreliable and will only serve the more popular routes. They remain very marginal in terms of public support and investment. So they don't really enjoy a lot of support from the government. Usually, for instance, in Ghana, the government's investments, and it's also those from its development partners, they tend to direct them to high quality, they call it bus rapid transit, BRT projects. And they often do not always work as planned. And even public transportation gaps. Then other problems, you know, are fed into it. For instance, road construction. Okay, this induces more spread out land use and hence encourage you know, people to travel more. But then they are often prioritized over user-oriented public you know, transport provision. So essentially, much of the money that's put aside for public transportation ends up being used to develop pre-existing road and transportation networks, rather than bringing services and amenities closer to the residential areas. So you're not necessarily improving access. Many of these countries inherited the planning laws that their colonial masters left for them. But in most cases, they've tried to revise them. The problem is that the attitudes and practices of politicians and planners around planning and land use still reflect these colonial framework and mentalities. And one of them is the separation of work and other activities, including shopping and all those things, far from home. Right. So if people live far away from the things that support their life, what does it mean? They have to travel to assess them. So you compel people to travel more. And you add in the prioritization of road construction, which also stimulates more traveling. The Ministry of Transport data suggests that 80% of you know, Ghana's transport budget is directed towards road construction. So together you have kind of an atmosphere where public resources, roads, streets, finance, planning laws, land use systems are invested to compel or encourage people to travel but then there is no commensurate investment in user-oriented public transport. What would happen in a context like Ghana where a lot of people do not have money? What would be the demand? They would go for the used vehicles. And so if you put in all these together in the context of low income and also weak regulation, well-documented problem with corruption in the customs service, these undermine effective enforcement of regulating used vehicle imposts. To sum this up, 
people don't have the money to buy newer, less polluting cars, and secondly, as a result of corruption, even the regulation that's put in place to prevent old cars from coming in isn't as effective as it could be, meaning older used cars still end up making it onto the road. The government recently introduced a limitation on the import of used cars. Can you yeah. give us some context to that, what happened there? That's not the first time that Ghana has tried to limit the import of used vehicles. In June 1998, they introduced a similar act in Customs Excise and Preventive Service Management Amendment Act. That also banned import of all vehicles older than 10 years, and then they replaced it four years later in 2002 with a new law that instead imposed penalties on the importation of the vehicles. The idea with these vehicle bans, penalties, and all those regulations is to reduce the consumption of the vehicles and, of course, the harms that come with it. As a result of the import restrictions, the number of imported cars did go down. And so the number of registered new vehicles dropped down. What was surprising or shocking is that these reductions did not translate into public health gains in terms of meaningful sustained reduction in road injuries or vehicular pollution. For instance, in 1998, Ghana's road traffic crash in Jipe, 100,000 people, it was around 28.54. It reduced slightly to 28.18 in 1999 and then rose into 33.34 in 2003. So it go up and down. The reductions really were not meaningful. And the figures could be even much higher, given that road traffic crash reporting is a bit problematic in Ghana. He says in that period, pollution actually increased. One study even found that between 1999 and 2003, that is at the time the ban and the penalties were being enforced, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, volatile organic compounds, nitrogen oxides and PM emissions even went up in the Accra Tema area. Accra, the capital of Ghana, is part of the greater Accra region, which includes Tema, a city neighbouring the capital. Festival says the majority of vehicles are concentrated in this region. Now, one of the reasons that pollution and accidents didn't go down is that although imports went down, the actual use of old cars didn't. The bans and higher penalties appear to result in some declines in the quantity of registered used vehicle imports. But you don't bring a shift towards new safer, less polluting vehicles, and also sustain public gains. And it, it shouldn't be surprising. One, if you restrict used vehicle supply without making it easier for people to buy brand new ones, which is always the case, the restrictions would likely compel people to keep really old vehicles on the roads for a very long time. People will still need the vehicles. And so if they can't bring them, then they will keep using the really old ones, which become more polluting and more dangerous, and then contribute to crash and also vehicular pollution and other public health problems. But Festival also notes that the official figures on used car imports are not necessarily reliable. It might also be that, contrary to official statistics, the import restrictions don't really reduce supply. They only direct used vehicle to the black market. You don't invest in public transport options so that with the restrictions they could have alternatives what would happen you create a gap right a demand gap and the vehicles are just like any other commodity once they serve real need if people don't have legitimate or 
other viable alternative options. You are just shifting the demand and supply to the black market and therefore end up worsening the corruption around used vehicle imports. And so you would have official statistics telling you that, okay, the rate of registration have gone down and so the imports are going down. But what actually might be happening is that importers in cahoots with corrupt public officials might be manipulating the details of the vehicles to escape the bans and the penalties and they would enter the system, cause more pollution and crashes. So you create conditions on one hand that you want to restrict the supply of the vehicles. And then you create, on the other hand, conditions that stimulate demand, which manifest in the investments using public and resources, streets, roads, money, planning laws to encourage the demand for the vehicle on our hand. Right. And so these contradictions create the situations that we see. And so you need to create alternatives. Otherwise, um, they would find you know, other ways to you know, get them in. In the end, the environmental impact of used cars will be felt not just in Ghana and the region, but globally. So when it comes to climate change and public health, out of sight isn't out of mind. So in the end, if you just transfer vehicles elsewhere, you undermine the global and local goals to move towards safe and low emissions transport, period. We all share the same ozone right? And so it doesn't matter that the used cars are being used in Ghana. It affects the same you know, climate that we all share. For festival, the onus is on both developing as well as richer nations to invest in better public transport in places like Ghana. Exporting countries have some responsibility. For instance, they can help the global south countries to implement policies that will reduce demand, including building viable public transport systems. It's also about investments, right? So if the funds to do these investments do not exist, and then the conditions would always be there to stimulate the supply and also the demand. And so part of, for instance, these aid and international development could be better directed to support building efficient public transport systems, creating better land use systems that would create or resolve some of the conditions that create room for the export or the import of the vehicles to persist. I suppose the the solution to this is both regulation (laughs) in countries in the global south and regulation, better regulation in, in richer countries to make sure that older cars don't just get exported, but are possibly recycled. Correct. And also, regulation can only go so far. Changing land use systems, creating effective public transport, and also improving the general economic well-being of people so that they probably can buy better cars if they have to use it. A whole lot of policies that really could help reduce motorized transport dependency. I think that's the critical point, okay? If we are able to change these border dynamics, it would affect the behavior around vehicle consumption and also exports. Yeah. We need other more fundamental, other more comprehensive policies to effectively deal with the used vehicle problem. So we need to rethink the existing approaches. I like Festival's point here, and man, what a classic one for climate change. You can't just ship your problem out to some other country because guess what? It's a global problem. CO2, pollution, these things circle around the globe, and okay, I can ship my old car out to Ghana, for example, 
but it'll come right back home to the U.S. shores and London and everywhere else on the world. Yeah, totally. Unfortunately, at the moment, it doesn't seem like governments in the global north have much interest in improving the conditions elsewhere in the world, right? even if it comes back to haunt them. A lot of climate researchers are thinking about this sort of problem. And I'd be interested to know, with regards to cars and buses, are there any policies or is there any research that's looking to fix this? I guess it's a problem of incentives. Yeah, so when I spoke to Paul, he said one possible way forward is to try and incentivize a greener type of trade between countries. The idea is to set up a trade alliance that incentivizes goods and services that have lower emissions. And that is likely to happen very much by sector. It's not going to happen for the whole economies. It's going to go by certain sectors. You've already seen, by the way, that Europe has proposed setting up a carbon border tariff or fee for the importation of goods that have higher greenhouse gas emissions or they have to pay a penalty for importation. So this is where the world is moving. And essentially, the import, export, and trade standards have yet to catch up with the movement of cleaner technologies. The question is, can you create a market that incentivizes better vehicles that are less polluting and that get better fuel economy and help these developing countries as well as developed countries reduce emissions that's the question i think that can be done and i think it's an area of trade policy and regulatory policy that both developed and developing countries need to address That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to this week's academics, Paul Bledsoe and Festival Godwin Boateng. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support the podcast and the conversation more broadly. Just go to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by me, Mend Mariwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor, and Alice Mason runs our social media. And I am Dan Marino. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. <laughs>